0: first questions are going to come from our speakers on the stage. Alex, over to you. Uh, you. I'd like to welcome you, Sam. Thank you. And our students to engage with. Um, I think our first question is going to come from Daniel.
1: Oh. Alex.
2: um. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Hi,
3: Sam. So uh, my question, there is a there's an attainment gap you know um, nationally you know between bME and non bme students, um, so I think I wanted to ask in your new role, you know how do you intend to tackle this?
4: Thank you, uh, Daniel. Firstly, can you all hear me? Great, I, I think I'll probably stand in Th- thanks for it now I've been doing a number of these since I was appointed, but in none of them has the president of the SU, chosen to go for the first question. <laughs> 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 you know, but so well done, well, well, well done, well done. But uh, I'll just say quickly, the reason why um, I, d- I decided to uh, embark on Sam on campus, which you know, a colleague unhelpfully said, you know this is going to be like a Tony Blair style punishment or uh, going around universities is, <clears throat> if you had to go back 20 years, a university's ministers relationship Uh, was mainly with the vice-chancellor, and they would have visited like I have today, they would have spent time with the vice-chancellor, probably the pro-vice chancellors, and then gone back up to Westminster. But education, higher education has changed. Higher education has changed in many ways, and we've got more universities, but we've also got students investing a considerable amount of money in their education. And I think that therefore the relationship between the minister and the university should extend to the students as well to give students a voice in the corridors of power. Now, I know um, the local MP here, who's a colleague and a good friend of mine, Connor Burns, has been doing a lot of that on the uh, parliamentary and political side. But I think in terms of government, students also deserve some of that direct input. So that is why I embarked on this tour. But there's also a political aspect to it as well. And, um, you know, campuses have become hotbeds of political activity and I want to know politically, what your thoughts are, you know, what your priorities are, or what you think the priorities of government should be, not just in higher education, but in government uh, more generally. There may even be people here who voted for Jeremy Corbyn, and um, <laughs> I would like to hear from them to, uh, to, to, to know their thoughts. So I've got some questions today as well, but going to Daniel's question, he went for fair steps, and um, on um, the attainment gap, you're absolutely right. There is. And while access, the first thing is that access has improved a lot. So people from disadvantaged backgrounds now are now um, some like 20% more likely to actually go to university than they were in 2009. And we now have more disadvantaged people going to university than ever before. There is obviously, there is clearly some work to do around part time students before someone shouts out, stands up and goes, what about part-time students? um, But there is a big improvement story around access for disadvantaged uh, students going to university, particularly amongst black and ethnic minority students. But access shouldn't stop there, because what we see is that when it comes to attainment, and when it comes to going into the job market and getting high-paid jobs, that they they lag behind other students. So there is a lot of work to be done there. And um, I think we need to look at a number of things. Firstly, uh, financial support when people are at university. We need to understand the way our courses uh, operate. And um, it's a sort of, it's, it's very much a priority of mine. I know it's a priority of the NUS. And I was speaking to them only two or three weeks ago, and I think we're going to be working on a number of things together to really put a laser-like focus on this area. Because it can't be that getting to people to university is the end of the story. We actually need to do more. And um, especially as in terms of uh, financial terms, uh, roughly 750 pounds of every um, student's fees, that's what it works out as, goes towards access. And a huge amount of it goes towards support. So we need to understand how that money is being used. It's something like 830 million, and whether it's being used in a way that is impactful, not just in getting people to university, but to make sure that they succeed. So that's what I'm going to be looking at as well. Thank you. Uh, any other questions? I'm sure in the top table are going to go for. <laughs> the
0: any other questions? Also, um, you mentioned the finances there. Um, how how are the plans for differential fees going to impact social mobility at undergraduate courses?
4: Well, there are, there are no plans for differential fees. Um, what there is is there is a government review looking into post eighteen education and funding, and um, one of the reasons for the review is. When um, the current fee system was introduced, the understanding was that there will be different different institutions will charge different fees based on different offerings. Right, so we don't really have many two-year degrees. We don't have uh, what by which I mean accelerated degrees. And the system default has defaulted, by and large, to a three-year on-campus offering. Now, given that there are 534,000 students who accepted a place at university last year, I don't believe that all of them have exactly the same needs and exactly the same aspirations, and it would be good to have more variety in the system. Now, some of that variety already exists. So there are some universities, certainly Bournemouth, you've got some sandwich courses, you've got work experience as part of the courses that you have here. If you go to Coventry, they've got a campus in Dagenham that they're setting up and doing... uh, sort of a given a slightly different model, then I think that is helpful to have a university system that really satisfies the needs of all students if it's going to work, because there would be different people going into university at different points. Um, if I'm a mature student, I might actually want an accelerated degree, which is why the government is uh, bringing uh, leg- uh, regulations for that forward. So. There isn't a plan for differentiated fees there is a review into it and the reason why I think the review is important is I think for the higher education system to be satisfy the needs of students there's got to be more than one offer out there you know wherever you go you know whether it's and uh, you know I'm going to use an example of a supermarket before someone says we're not consumers but that's the example that sprang to mind um, you expect that there, there is a variety there to suit different needs and there's no reason why we can't have that in the, uh, in the edu- higher education system to satisfy the needs of students.
0: And, um, and, and based on that, what, is the ne- what are the next steps for the review and will, will that involve students and engage, engaging students in that process?
4: Yes, yes. there, there will be a student panel contributing to uh, the work of the review. There will be a call for evidence. Uh, to which um, the student unions can contribute and uh, many other um, organisations as well. And um, I would say when these reviews happen, everyone focuses on kind of what is negative, but I think you should also focus on what is positive. And certainly what I was saying to the Vice-Chancellor is Bournemouth needs to tell its story more loudly uh, to the world. I think what is offered here is terrific. Um, in terms of the focus, um, in terms of how applied it is, in terms of um, the outcomes, you know, you, 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 you're getting. And many people, when they talk about still, I think people's, when people talk about universities, many people have a view shaped by when they were at university or when their children or grandchildren went to university. But the university system is... Far more diverse and more dynamic than people appreciate. So, if you are going to contribute to this call for evidence, I would say that you want to be celebrating uh, what Bournemouth is doing, and I want to see more of this across the university system, not less.
0: Uh, are there any questions from the audience about what we've just discussed? Let the
4: fun begin, <laughs> gentlemen over there.
0: There's a There's a microphone
4: coming. I think.
5: talks about finances one of the biggest issues I have um, is I get the minimum amount of maintenance loan which didn't actually cover my rent in halls it didn't cover my rent this year in my student house it will never be enough to cover my rent in Bournemouth and in London the situation is even worse even though you get more uh, I'm fortunate enough that I'm an only child in my family but if my parents had chosen to have another child they would not be able to give me any money and I would be choosing whether to my house or whether to eat I don't think that's a choice should be giving students so how is this review going to address that problem because i know i'm not the only one that faces it
4: well um i, I sort of uh, see where you're coming from but the, the first point on maintenance loans now is there is now more access, there's access to more money through the maintenance loan system than there was before i know the lady next to you is shaking her head but if you go back to the pre-2012 reforms you'd have got three thousand pounds roughly as a grant and your access to a loan would have been about £3,000, so £6,000 a year. That is less than on a means-tested basis that you can get now. And so there is now more money available than was there before. Now, the principle of the maintenance loan is it doesn't cover all your costs, but it covers, it's supposed to sort of help. So um, that, that is something, that, that's why the review we'll we'll look at that but it is still a more general system and you might say it's a loan and not a grant and why is it uh, not a grant well at the end of the day if you don't earn from first of april over 25000 pounds you never pay it back right and um, it's nine percent of your income and after 30 years the whole thing is written off anyway so i see it as if you are disadvantaged and i know of this in my university experience when there weren't any of these loans available. I was expected to get support from family. That support wasn't available. I would have been thrown out of college because I couldn't pay my rent till I agreed a deal with them. And I see that as the first kind of type of maintenance loan. But what you don't want is a situation where you are completely barred from going to university because it's linked to what your parents can give you. But now majority of the income, it might not be 100% of it, is available to you if uh, in the form of a loan, and so it does not stop disadvantaged people from getting to university. Can the system be improved? Should it be looked at? The answer is yes. And that's why uh, that's what the review is uh, looking at.
0: Um, just a few. Sorry, after
4: you. Yeah, were you going to ask another oh, supplementary? No, I, I think, l- let, me, let me just ask. OK, I'll take your question. I've got a question to ask. So, the lady over there now.
6: On the um, previous question, you didn't fully actually answer how you're actually going to fit. Um, but my question is: you brought up the fact that Bournemouth University gives out sandwich placements, but the previous time that um, it the, the the idea of unpa- unpaid unpaid and internships would be banned in the UK through Parliament. Conservatives voted against that. It's going through Parliament again this year. Um, how's that going to be fixed? Because people with unpaid internships, they can't afford to actually do it. And um, the fact that maintenance loans aren't given out during those periods of time, and parents are expected to support their kids during that time, unpaid is it's just not an option. How are you gonna actually fix that?
4: Let, um, let, let me be clear: Conservatives do not support unpaid internships, right? We no, 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 we don't support unpaid internships. But if you ban something, what it means is that there is some experience that will not be available at all. But what we do support is, we we introduce the national living wage. We do want people to be paid at least the national living wage for their jobs. We do want companies to pay uh, their interns. But banning it would mean that there will be some experience that will not exist at all. So, for example, if someone wanted to come to my office in parliament for a couple of days or a week for an internship, it may be that, you know, I always pay them, but it may be that actually the best way to do it is they just come for the experience, sit around, and that is not something that they want to be paid for. But if you ban it, I might not con- even consider giving that person the opportunity at all, even if it's for two days. But we do support people getting outside work. But not just getting outside work, but also getting more of the money that they earn. You know, Under conservatives, the first um, 10,500 pounds you earn is free of income tax. And that is support that is support the low paid, and particularly students, in the types of jobs that they do. So don't for, uh, the fact that we don't want to ban it completely doesn't mean that we are supportive of it. But what we don't want to do is to create a situation where, at the margin, someone doesn't get a look in, and especially in the creative industries where the companies are often, you know, you've got a startup that's operating on a shoestring, someone can go and help there for a bit to be able to get some experience to put on their CV, but that is not even possible because internships are banned. I think that will be a backward step to take, and a lot of people will not get even any experience, sometimes someone would start off by doing a couple of days here, a couple of days there, and then their next internship or their next experience is three months long for which they are paid. But if they hadn't even spent a couple of days at the local newspaper, they wouldn't even get to the position where their CV is able to do that. And at the margin, we do not want to stop that kind of experience. In, in, in which case, you know, if there is if there is abuse in the marketplace, it should be looked at. But that's not the, but banning it as a with a blanket ban does not solve the problem. So I think it should definitely be looked at if there is abuse, and I'm happy to um, uh, talk in detail about it afterwards. But I don't believe that a blanket ban will solve the problem. I think I'll leave the president of the Lib Dems uh, for a second, and uh, why don't I? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, your reputation precedes you and, um, <laughs> and then um, I'll take the lady over there and then yes yeah, sir.
1: Um, so you, he was saying over there he gets the, the smallest maintenance grant, I get the highest maintenance grant and it didn't cover my rent in my first year in student accommodation um, but on top of that I'm also a mature student so how do you justify the fact that I could be paying off my debt for the rest of the best part of my life now?
4: Well, the only two people who could pay for um, university education, the person who benefits from it, and I'm assuming that you're doing it because you see that it's beneficial, and the general taxpayer. The general taxpayer's contribution at the moment is 45%. So whatever you pay, the taxpayer is in for 45%. Right? You're Right? not paying 100% of it at all. So we've got a system where the taxpayer pays 45%, you pay
1: 55%. I think that is fair, given that... I don't think it's fair to be in almost sort of £55,000 debt in three years at the age of 30, can just it, coming can through I,
4: university. Can, can I... Uh, let me develop my answer. So I think it's fair to have a system where the taxpayer shares in the cost of it with the person who benefits from it. But our system is a contribution of a graduate tax uh, is a combination of a graduate tax and a loan system you you, you only pay 9% of your income over 25,000 pounds if you're out of work you pay nothing right after 30 years that's it whatever you've paid is written off the, tax pay, the the treasury deliberately knows that majority of people will not be able to pay it but it is a good it's a good way of funding university because what it has done it is as ensure that there is money going into universities. Today, universities do not have to compete with the NHS, with defence, with policing for money from the taxpayer for every budget. Because otherwise, what you find is in one budget, the uh, chancellor decide universities get a little bit less because we need to give money to defence or to give money to policing this year. Universities have been insulated from that. And as a result of which, our universities could be properly funded to deliver the education They have to deliver. And I think it would be a false economy if we had a situation where the taxpayer was in for 100% and you had university cuts, and then as a result of that, your education wasn't as good as it was meant to be. The alternative is to do it for free. But in every system in which it's free, the numbers that can go to university are capped. The reason why the numbers are capped when the chancellor sits down he decides university is going to only get this much this year he then has to decide how many people can go to university and i'm against that because i think it puts a limit on people's aspirations it is just not possible to have a university system that we have today where one in two can go to university and have it for free when it was free you had something like 15 percent going to university and every party when they're being in opposition have taken an irresponsible approach to student funding. You know, when we were in opposition, the Conservatives, we voted against it when Labour brought variable tuition fees because it's easy to do that kind of thing when you're in opposition. When the Liberal Democrats were in opposition, they, thought, they said they were going to get rid of tuition fees. They got into government, and they realized that actually, it made sense to have tuition fees. And with us, they troubled tuition fees. Um, but, um, and I think it was a brave decision for them to take. i say that it was a brave, but Jeremy Corbyn's answer will not, is not sustainable, and if he tries to implement it, it will mean that a lot of people here, and I don't know how many of people here are the first in your family to go to university, will not go to university, because if you limit the numbers, it is the well-off that will benefit. And it's not, I'm not just saying that. Look at all the other countries that do it. If you look at Scotland, for example, what do you find is that the numbers are limited and it benefits the well of most. But your other question about your maintenance, I think, needs to be looked at. And lifelong learning and mature students, we need to look at it. And that's very much a part of the review, to be able to facilitate that. Because there is no such thing as a job for life anymore. And when you could finish a first degree, if you did a degree, and that was pretty much enough to last for your work in life most people will do multiple jobs, will have different career changes. So we do need to facilitate that and have a funding system that supports that and that's very much a part of the review.
0: I think we're going to go to Brooke now for a question.
7: (coughs) Um, So my question is, how important do you think it is for universities to support student unions in providing extracurricular activities so that students feel like they're getting value for money from their degree.
4: This is, this is let me just get this right, this is, um, this is a row or fight between the student union and the university and you're asking me to intervene, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's just, just to be clear. Um, I, 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 I don't know, the background, I don't know the, the, the background to this particular one and so if you could sort of enlighten me. It's more about
7: do you think it's important that students are being provided more than just their academic degree um, I know we spoken to a lot of students and they have stressed the importance of doing everything else to get a well-rounded experience at university. Hugely, I think absolutely
4: hugely. I think um, sometimes, and you know, I can be guilty of this myself, when you, you, know, you talk about value for money from university degrees all the time, and it risks narrowing the debate and people seeing the whole debate as go to university and get a job, a high paid job. But um, university, there's a lot more to a university experience than that. And it is, I, I think, is a rite of passage uh, for many people, and certainly that's how our society, we deal with people going for many people going from home to independent adulthood. Um, it is the first time that many people will meet people who are completely different to them. Schools are quite homogenous, you know, schools have a catchment area and pick people broadly from the same area, broadly similar outlooks, and universities where you get challenged, where you challenge, and as I've said before, it's an assault on the census. To facilitate that, it means that there has to be a lot of other activity, not just to build the CV. I think it's to that whole free exchange of ideas and what university is about, people going and studying abroad, meeting people from abroad, has to be facilitated at a university. I think that is what makes university special. That is what makes it unique. And that is what a lot of people look for when they want to go to university, as well as their degree. So. In principle, yes, but in terms of what specifically is
7: going on between no, the We're supported a job, lot by yeah. our university with providing extra, uh, I can't say it, providing extracurricular activities. I just wanted to know um, your opinion on it, yeah. so thanks.
4: Can I ask a question? So I've been in this job for, I think, two months now, and I think I know what I want to do, but I'd like to hear from you. If you had my job for a day, <laughs> what would be your one priority? One priority, not, 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 not a speech. Who go first? Young over there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> uh, who, who who go next? The lady over there in glasses.
6: Hi, so um, over the past few months, I've been talking a lot about students being viewed as a consumer. Um, here with um, the Office for Students meeting that we had and with some local Um, university students when I went to India recently Um, so moving on from that I think my main focus would be factoring mental health into that part of and how universities view that as the value for money that you get when you're paying for a degree because that's really what's been important to me so that's kind of my answer and at the same same time what are we going to do to ensure that that is focused on?
4: Well, the Office for Student has a very wide-ranging remit of which value for money is just one of them. But student well-being is um, a key part of it. I am very concerned about uh, the mental health um, issue. And uh, can I just tackle something? I want to hear what other people said, but quickly about this, students as consumer thing. I think it is right, and it's abs- I find it really odd that students are there, and we're saying, for the first time, ever, and the biggest shake-up in 25 years in higher education, there is an organization there to champion your interests. And people turn around and say, no, 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 don't champion my interests. I don't want to be treated as a consumer. They're there to fight for you. They're there to fight for your interests, because otherwise, it's you and the university, and not every university experience for every student will be the same. Not every student's experience on every course will be the same. And you do need a regulator. To make sure that students are champion, not just as consumers, but that the system acts in your interest. and I think is a positive thing. So I find it really strange when people click to me on Twitter, "Oh, you're yeah, treating students as consumers." No, we're championing and empowering students. That must be surely be a good thing. Anyway, enough for me on that one. Yes, if you had my job for a day, gentlemen, what will you do? One policy. Very good. Very good. i follow-on from Aristotle and. Um, Learn by habituation, which is what I'm doing. <laughs> Go for it. You'd want maintenance loans and that kind of funding. Well, I, you, I mean, you, you can't, you can't I mean, get funding for postgrads, not with the student loan system. So if you're saying that the student loan system should be extended to postgraduates rather than research funding and all of that, I think that's something that we, we all have to look at. I don't have an answer for you. So, easy as the answer.
6: Oh, thank you. I'm a bit late. Many students and young people aren't going to find what they're really passionate in because they're not being given creativity from a young age. The push towards e laureates and the push towards STEM is deeply worrying for the creative industries, as the third biggest sector in the UK. I will be putting that back on the agenda.
4: Well, it's, it's, I mean, we, we are, as a country, very successful in the creative arts, you know, um, in terms of um, the economy, in terms of business, our successful businesses. And, um, you know, I was met with the uh, Royal Academy this week, and they, you know, they don't talk about STEM, they talk about STEAM. And, that. and I, I don't think anyone is pushing the creative arts out, but I think it's one of these things where, just like the value for money point, if people hear a politician talk about STEM one too many times, they assume that it means you're ignoring everything else. Um, which is not the case at all. I think we do value creativity. And, in fact, one of our unique selling points is creativity. And um, if you look at where where we are really successful, it's not just having everyone who can do their equations uh, getting it right. It's also getting a bit of creativity. And if if you go to Silicon Valley, a lot of them are looking not just for coders now, they're looking for people who can bring some real creativity to it. So, yes, it is valued. Yes, it is an important part of the economy. And perhaps we should make that a lot clearer now in terms of changing the EBAC. I think the EBAC is to make sure that everyone leaves the school system with some core subjects. But that is not to the exclusion of the creative arts. OK, no, I'll take that
3: back. Um, Gentleman over there. So if I had your job for a day, just uh, one comment on that. There used to be under labor a system for career development loans, right, which disappeared at some point. But there used <coughs> to be one. Um, if I had your job for a day, the first thing I'd try to do is to con- convince the um, cabinet and the people around me that actually um, financially i don't think the students are better off than uh, so you said earlier that they're better off than i don't know 20 years ago or something um, i don't think they're better off than that today uh, students seem to struggle they seem to be uh, working more than they should be for the amount of work we want them to do for the degrees so uh, my first if i do a job i'd first convince the people around me that actually people are not better off than they used to be
4: What what I mean is better off in the sense of you've got more people going to university. Now this is, um, the system of mass higher education we have now, one in two of 18 to 30 year olds going to university, is a challenge that we have never ever faced as a society before. And um, it is expensive if you want that many people to be educated at university level. And the way we're dealing with it as a country is to say yes, we have no cap on numbers, so that anybody who's capable and willing can get get into university can have a funding system. Now, that compared to when you had a minority who went to university and everything was paid for, it's not going to be the same. But I think it's better to have a system. I think it's better to have a system where if people can do it and they want to do it, that the funding is not a barrier to them being able to access higher education. That's what I meant.
3: than the people might have been in the past, but I think... Well, in terms
4: of support available...
0: Sam, would you say now that there are maybe too many people, young people going to universities and that perhaps they should take alternative routes?
4: Not, not at all. I, I think it's not, for, it's not for the, thankfully, government minister to determine who can get to university and who can't. As, as I've said, I think that is wrong. You want people who are capable of doing academic study to get into university. But we also need alternative routes, but not to say that, not because too many people are going to university. Actually, we need alternative routes so that people don't think university is the only option open to them if they want to do something else. So if my strengths lie in a completely different area and I don't want to go and do three years and I would rather do something vocational, I should be able to do it. And I, I think one of the, and that's something that we need to look at. And if I chose to do something vocational, that the quality of education and the paths open to me are as good as the paths open to someone who went to university. But also I'd quite like to see more uh, join-upness so someone could start vocational on the vocational route. And if later on, they wanted to gain a degree, that the path into university was quite straightforward. And I think those are the kind of system things that we need in our system. And I don't want anyone to feel that whatever reason they're going to be a failure and not succeed in life because they're not going to university that's what i don't want to see so lady over there
7: hello um i should probably say i'm a staff member not a student so i was going from that direction um i am a program leader for one of the courses here and i've been doing a lot of academic what we call academic advising of, of young students as well and i primarily Uh, look after the first years and it kind of links into stuff that we've talked about with mental health and one of the issues that i feel see it from a staff side is that students aren't prepared to come to university that they are not prepared and so if i had your job for a day i would go and make sure that what's being done in schools and the lead up does and the reason i say that is for this the way that we approach academic study and having a certain number of contact hours and we try to foster independent thinking the idea of developing someone who is a scholar who is an academic by the end that by the time they graduate in their particular discipline that requires them to think independently but we have students coming in from a level b tech or, or backgrounds whereby teachers are effectively telling them this is what you've done wrong go back and correct it and there's continuous going back and they are to a certain extent, and I'm sorry if I offend anybody, module coddled, I suppose, to kind of get the grade and be told that is, you know, you're learning by rote. And that goes against how we do it here at university. You have to go and read. You have to go and do all these things. And I think there is a... One of the issues with the mental health stuff is that students feel they haven't got the skills to do that because they've gone from, like, a timetable that is literally telling them you know, effectively when to get out of bed, when to do all these different things, to now having, you've actually got the freedom and they don't have the skills potentially to do that. And I think that something needs to be seriously done in the lead up to prepare them for that. So I think that would help with the the mental health. And my second one would be, I am a, a proponent of students as consumers. When I was at university at Manchester, I got done over by the uni. I didn't like it and there was nothing really I could do. But what's interesting though is that that if you're going to go down that path, you have to remind students that coming to university, it's not compulsory education, you're making a choice to make an investment in yourself, okay, and that they also have a responsibility. And the reason I say that is in light of what you said about um, what was in the, the preamble, about different courses now going to be given or subject specific about, you know, why people are leaving or all these various things, Sometimes those things aren't in our capability and I can, the same way that we say in, in, uh, in, in further education, secondary education, that there is a massive uh, relationship between attendance and attainment. Here, I could probably speak for the majority of our staff that maybe students forget that they also play a part in this little contract. And I, me personally, I would also like to see an open discussion on that side of things it's not just about us as staff delivering a service and i kind of get the feeling there's a sense of you're buying a degree and i don't agree with that you have to earn it you're you're paying for access to knowledge that will help you later on and i think the rhetoric behind a lot of it and what potentially what students say and i say this as a person who sees students as consumers students also need to be engaged and talked to that they actually have a role to play
4: brilliant Thank you very much for those points. Really good, really, really helpful. So just, just a couple more, and if you had my job for a day, and then we can go to some more general questions. Gentleman over here. Um,
1: um, I obviously have additional challenges coming to university. Um, I require support from a lot, such as um, social care. Um, and when I said that I wanted to go to university, I was basically told um, that, you know, they were a bit thrown by it. And I think it needs to be a bit more joined up and supportive so that disabled people with challenges have the right resources to go as far as their talents will take them. I don't really feel like that's the case at the moment. Very good point. Very good. Very good. Well, I'm glad.
4: I'm glad you overcame the um, barriers in your way, and that you are here. And um, afterwards, maybe we should grab a couple of minutes and so really let, let's discuss some of the issues. Yeah. That's really yeah. so. One more on that, and then we can move, gentlemen of the back. Yeah. <clears throat>
8: it's not really working. He so might want a child. he He's okay. being persistent.
4: You don't want to leave? Sorry. Yeah. Well, I I think it's a successful um, university experience should prepare you, should not only get you in, make sure that you succeed while you're at university, but also you're well placed to progress in life afterwards. I think for many of us, um, it's inevitable that immediately after university, you might spend a bit of time back where you grew up, maybe in the room in which... (laughs) you were 15 years old, but what you don't want is you don't want a situation where you finish university, you're an adult, and the opportunities are not there for you to move on uh, with your life, Um, whether it's um, housing or whether the economic environment isn't such that you don't get the job you need or you don't even feel prepared to um, access the job market in the right way, some of which the university can help with in terms of certainly um, uh, uh, career services and all of that in terms of the job and the economy. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, if you want to visit Parliament, I'm sure um, Connor, your MP, would be happy to, and so would I. I'll, I'll be willing to. I I think that's right, I think you're right, Uh, but I also think that's something that Bournemouth actually does a much better job of than certainly some of the other universities that I've seen, but more of it should be done as part of the undergraduate experience, I agree.
0: Sam, on a a similar kind of question, if the government had unlimited resources and faced no barriers, what what two things would you change uh, that that matter personally to you? It doesn't necessarily need to be related to higher education.
4: Well, Well, governments never, ever have unlimited resources. Um, Because, ultimately, governments don't have money. Governments rely on the taxes that uh, people pay. And given that people pay their taxes and you can't tax them um, ad infinitum, and nor can you keep borrowing, which is the other way in which governments get money, you can't keep borrowing forever, there will always be a limit to what government can do. And quite rightly so. I I I don't want to live in a world where I rely on government to do everything for me. I do value my sense of agency as a person. I do value the sense that I can choose what I want to do rather than be told or be given what I need by someone sitting somewhere who's decided this is the right thing for me. You know, that's when you have the situation in communist Cuba, which is not what we are. But if I could do what, in terms of the things I'm looking at as university, university access is very um, important. I think um, on the end access as we, um, Daniel asked right at the beginning, getting in, succeeding, getting on, very importantly. I would say that um, the making sure, I mean, the, the lady over there put it really, put it really well, that um, value for money, but students who are, I, I do feel that students who are going to university get the most out of that experience is very, very important. I think this, you're asking people to make a big investment and any other investment you make sure that the support is there and the infrastructure is there for them to make the right decisions and for it uh, to be successful. But I'm also the Science and Innovation Minister and I think there is a big opportunity for us as a country to, we currently punch above our weight in terms of our science research and we can go even further. And one of our big commitments is to spend 2.4% of our GDP on research and innovation. Now, just to put that in perspective, our NATO commitment on defence is 2% of gdp so we'll be spending more than we spend on defence on research and innovation and i think what that will mean terms so if as a country if we manage to deliver that it would mean uh, more jobs it would mean more technically uh, and innovative jobs available it would mean succe- supporting high growth businesses but it also be a britain that is very dynamic and very forward looking and very much about the future. And that is something that I am really, really focused on. And um, uh, while I mentioned science, obviously science and Brexit and making sure that the science community gets the right deal from Brexit, those are my sort of priorities um, in my job. But then there have been a number of other ones that have come out uh, tonight, you know, mental health, I know is a big, is a big issue. And, um, and certainly what the gentleman said about disabled students, their ability to access education together, and get on all of those are important. So gentlemen in glasses over there and then well you you've got glasses too, but the one in the middle and then you
3: Bristol. Um and then I think it was at King's College London with I don't know his real name, but his code name is Sargon of Akkad with um Antifa shutting down events, what will the government do to protect free speech on campus and actually have campuses as a sanctuary of learning and not a, a safe space for left-wing views? It's
4: the first time someone has asked that question and got an applause for it. And asked that in that way and, and, got, and got an applause in all of this, I think, you, I mean, uh, just to build on from what I said to, I think it was Brooke, was it? Yes. It was, not in her chair, (laughs) Um, what I said to her is that that university should be an assault on the senses. And I I think therefore we should all be prepared to challenge views and be challenged. I I think uh, the free exchange of ideas is not just in the lecture hall or the tutorial, I think it should permeate everything that happens at university. I think it's absolutely crucial and core to the university experience and therefore in this, or ideas that we see as unfashionable or unpopular should not be outlawed from a university campus because we see them as unacceptable. But in the same way, we don't want people creating echo chambers for their own views at university. But like your Facebook feed, you only hear the stuff that you want to hear, and then universities should challenge the senses even if you find it really uncomfortable. And nor do we want kind of what we're seeing in politics nationally where you've got bullying and intimidation of people of other views in some political parties. But I think to get that right, you start in the education system. And that's why one of the remits for the Office for Students, new regulator, is to promote free speech and make sure that it's doing that. We're not tolerating free speech, but we were actually actively promoting it. And one of the things that I've come across is the way censorship creeps in on campus. And you mentioned, Uh, Queen's College College is another incident that happened there where it was the former uh, deputy Israeli um, prime minister speaking at an event. You have people chanting outside, making lots of noise, and then the event gets shut down. The event gets shut down and, you know, the event kind of went ahead for a bit, but it wasn't really the event that was originally planned. And then the next time there's a similar event, the university's very worried about an outbreak of uh, violence, you know, And so the university is like, maybe we shouldn't have that event. Maybe you should think about it better. That's how censorship creeps in. You begin to stop yourself from allowing the free exchange of ideas and information. I think that is totally unacceptable on campus. And that's why the uh, OFS has that responsibility. But also, as minister, I have committed to holding a summit, bringing together the NUS, the Equalities, um, the Equalities Commission, and all these other organizations to look at all the different aspects of the law that underpin uh, free speech on campus to make sure that the law doesn't inadvertently allow, or people can inadvertently use the law to frustrate free speech by listing a whole number of things that you need to satisfy before you can have an event and all of those things. And I think, so I think it is really important, as important to the university experience as the gentleman over, over there said, getting work experience and be, uh, getting exposure to industry. Can I just ask, how many of you voted in the last general election? How many of you voted for the Conservatives? Oh, it's quite a few. OK, not bad. How many of you voted for the Labor Party? Quite a few. And how many of you voted for the Liberal Democrats? They're still owning up to it. (laughs) And and how many voted for UKIP, just out of interest? Ah, no Ukip. Interesting. And green, the Green Party. Couple over there. Okay. So, if you had, what would just quickly? What do you think is the most important thing in politics today? If one of you, if we just go around quickly and say, what is the most important? I think two of you have spoken. So let's try and get people who haven't spoken yet, if you don't mind. So, most important issue in politics today. Someone who hasn't spoken. You, you have spoken. You, you, you have spoken. Someone who hasn't spoken, most important issue in politics? Gentleman over there.
3: Uh, generally, in politics, I think uh, people either have an entitlement to equality or an entitlement to kind of some type of uh, nationalistic sense over what should be a greater good, and I feel like. Um, A lot of politics seems to value this competitive notion over a uh, cooperative notion. And uh, instead of people having their own sense of entitlement, they should have uh, more of an idea of what is better for humanity as a whole.
4: Okay, interesting. Um, You you have spoken. We can come back to you after other people. Anyone else, anyone who hasn't spoken? Gentleman over there.
3: Um, Conflict management with nuclear armed states particularly Russia, that's something that's um, very concerning for me.
4: Okay, so you think that's the big issue in politics today? That's interesting. Um, gentlemen, you spoke, so the one behind you.
5: Um, yeah, I'd like to see an end to the madness of austerity.
4: <laughs> Come on okay. Lady over here.
0: Maybe I'm just getting old and cynical, but um, I'm tired of spin. I'm tired of professional politicians. I want honesty, and I want decency in politics.
4: Very good. (laughs) One more. Lady over there, you haven't said anything. Climate change. Excellent, excellent. Well, that's 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 all very helpful to uh, to hear your. I think uh, you've spoken. Thank you. That's 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 all very helpful to to, to hear your thoughts, whether it's um, climate change or how you deal with Russia, um, austerity, which I have um, very strong views on, as as well as uh, some of the the others. I think they, they're they're all the big issues of our time. They're, they they certainly all are the big issues of our time. And just to, if I give a quick reaction to it, um, when people say the madness of austerity. Austerity is not a choice. It's not, um, it's, it's not a religion. It's certainly not ideological. It's a matter of necessity. And um, it's a matter of necessity because when you have whoever's whoever's responsible for it, let's park that for a Let's park that for a moment. But when you end up going having the biggest boom to bust in the world, you can't just sit there and assume it hasn't happened. <laughs> You can't just sit there and assume that nothing needs to be done about it. You need to somehow find a way of bringing public spending under control. Now, and you know that's what the Conservative government did. But it's you, you've got to do that in a way that is thoughtful and is sensible. So while doing that, um, the as I said, the personal allowance. Um, which is giving 31 people a tax cut so that their take-home pay increases even during those years, I think was a good thing. But also, there's I always, always know people think, well, you can just tax the rich more and that will deal with it. Now, we have a situation where you know, 1%, the top 1% pay 28% of income tax. And um, the way I think about it, I don't know how many of you here ever think you want to set up a business one day. Anyone here want to set up a business? the gentleman over there and let's let's take this thought experiment that you're thinking of setting up your business and you want to make it really successful but you know that in making it really successful all i want to do as other government is take as much of it away from you as possible even if it's for the greater good it's a really dis- it's a big disincentive to people to try their best to grow businesses to employ people so i think you ne- always need to strike a balance in taxation between Encouraging ingenuity, encouraging endeavor, while at the same time getting everyone to pay their fair share. And today, the top rate of tax in this country is 45%. That's income tax, that's before national insurance. It's higher than it ever was, apart from the last three months, under the 13 years that Labour was in power. You know, Gordon Brown put it up to 50p in the final three months to set a trap for the Conservatives, because the Conservatives got in and they. cut it he really cut it, then he can say the Tories have cut taxes for the rich. But actually for most of the time that Gordon Brown was around, the top rate of tax was 40 P. So when people say the madness of austerity, I can understand kind of the emotion that goes into it. But I think that from all our interests it's good to have a country where our economy works. But I did want to say, and I think just in reaction to your point on the point on Russia. And a conflict, a nuclear. I think that is a serious threat, and it is a serious problem. And what we've seen in the last few weeks, illegal use of military grade chemical weapons you know, on, in a foreign country. And if you begin to look at how many other people have died through kind of state sponsored assassinations, and Russia feels they can get away with it because of your nuclear power. I think we are in a new age in terms of our defense and security where we need to work out new ways to deal with this. I think the prime minister was right to make sure that when she acted, she had the support of our international allies, you know, France, Germany, the United States, all have all come out in solidarity with the United Kingdom. But I think we are, we are the foothills of what is a big problem that we need to deal with. And I agree, the la- I mean, I'll just say, the lady who said climate change and the gentleman who talked about being more cooperative uh, and uh, it probably was tied the lady said so she's about made the point about spin. I think in politics, two things: Remember, rem- remembering that ultimately you've got to earn the right to serve, and you're there to serve. But also, ultimately, we're here to make the world a better place. And I think the moment you forget that, um, then you are losing the trust of the people who've voted for you in the first place. Can we take some more questions? Desmond in the blue.
5: Hi, I'm actually speaking on behalf of the Labour Society president who couldn't attend tonight. Uh, in, 20, in 2010, you voted to raise undergraduate tuition fee cap to £9,000 per year, which has now been capped to £9,250. With an interest rate on the loans of these fees for 6.1%, students will, will be left with over £50,000 worth of debt after graduation. Your government has currently frozen the repayment threshold at an income of £21,000, and with inflation, that means students will have to start paying off their loans sooner when their money becomes less valuable. All of this is stressful and burdensome for students who, in this day and age, practically require university degrees in order to compete in a swelling market. Why did you vote initially for raising the fee cap, what argument can you provide to justify freezing the repayment threshold? And with university education becoming more standard and less specialised in a practical sense, shouldn't we look to reflect that in the cost?
4: Good. I, voted. I didn't just vote for this. I actually spoke in the debate in favour. <laughs> and I, I'm not ashamed of it, I think it's the right thing. Right? So, and my argument at the time still stands. My argument was if someone said to you the, different, the choice between getting to university and not getting to university at all, was that you were told, well, you can go to university and get the education you want, you choose your subject, um, you study hard, and when you come out, if you're not earning more than this, forget about it. And if you're earning more than this, give me 9%. And if whenever you're unemployed, don't pay me back. And by the way, I'm gonna write it off at some point. I thought that is a compelling deal if you want to move your life forward. If you are disadvantaged and you want to get your life forward and someone put that deal on the table to you, I think that is really compelling. Now, the alternative, which is making it free, is not available. We're never going to go back to a world where university education is free. And anyone who goes back to that, as I said, it will be the less well-off who will suffer the most. So given those two situations, some people say, why didn't you have a graduate tax instead? But the system we have is a combination of a graduate tax and a loan system. Now, anyone who's actually got a loan from a bank, a proper loan from a bank before, you'll know that there is no such thing as loan forgiveness from a bank, right? <laughs> there is no such thing as write-off from a bank. And if you don't pay, it ends up on your credit score, right? This doesn't end up on your credit score. If you go and take a mortgage, the bank doesn't say you've got this student loan, and the size of the loan is offset against how much you can borrow for a house. Obviously, the, the contributions, impact on your affordability because you've got 9% of your income on your affordability. So I voted for it. I haven't come from a family where I had very little support because I thought, and I think quite rightly, if you're from a disadvantaged background, this could be your ticket to improving your life. And I'm glad that I look, but we look back and there are more disadvantaged people going to university before than ever before, but also there are more students going to university than ever before. In other words, the current system has not deterred people from going to university. In fact, there's more demand for university. And the brightest and the best from around the world are queuing to come to our excellent universities to pay more than people pay here up front. And they don't have loans, right? They're paying, so if you want to do medicine and you're from abroad, you're gonna pay 20,000 pounds. The people coming here to do STEM subjects are paying 14, 15,000 pounds. We have an excellent education system, and I think a good degree is worth the
0: investment. Are oh, we're just gonna go to Ebony for the next question now. Moving away from fees. Uh, this, is on. Uh, this isn't so much a question about higher education, but it is something that our students here have been
6: really, really passionate about. Um, in Bournemouth, we've noticed that the homelessness crisis has risen to a point where the local council have introduced controversial measures to stop people sleeping in public places. Uh, how are the government planning to not only tackle the crisis on a national level, but also assist local councils in
0: supporting those who are homeless? Yeah.
4: It, it is a serious problem, and I think um, two weeks ago, the cabinet actually dis- discussed um, rough sleeping and what the government is going to be doing about it. So it is, it is a problem that is recognised at the highest levels um, of government. There are a number of things that uh, need to be done um, in terms of working with local authorities, as you said, but also um, just generally what we're doing around housing. And there is a lot that is happening to deal with this, and we do recognise that this is a problem and that we need to deal with, and it's not right that in this day and age, people
8: have to sleep rough. How mm, My voice, how do you all right? Um, so I'm, you know, a late millennial essentialist. So I've been brought up with- what,
4: Sorry, what is a late millennial?
8: Well, you know, being born in 1995. So I've been brought up with Facebook posts and Twitter, with people giving me like information on what I should believe in. Um, so the first thing that I do on my first date is explain, you know, what is a university minister? Because what I've got from you is, you know, you name, a Wikipedia page, and that's about it. So what I'd like to know is, you know, what does a university minister actually do? Um, and, you know, because a lot of people have a lack of trust in politicians because they don't explain, you know, what goes on and what, what they stand for. So, you know, like I say, you're giving us a name, but I'd like to know what, what a minister actually does, a university minister actually does.
4: Well, I hope I've given you more than a name. I've turned up to answer your questions. <laughs> and, um, that's, you know, and answer any question um, on my brief that anyone can put to me. So I think, hope that that's a lot more than you, you, you've picked up as a late millennial. You've got the minister in the flesh, not just um, online, uh, to, uh, to question. Um, as in terms of my brief, um, my responsibilities for universities, we have a system where... Universities are autonomous institutions, so it's not my job to run universities. Uh, Universities are vice chancellors who run them. But in terms of university policy, government policy that affects universities and students, that falls within my remit. So, what is our policy on access? What is our policy on student finance? What is our our policy on um, entrance into the university market? That um, what is how do you regulate our universities effectively? How do you what is our policy towards not just undergrads but postgrads? Um, what is our policy on science? Um, government funding of science kind of falls within our, my remit, and um, you know how much uh, how much support are we giving our scientists? And it's actually quite good, spending more than we have in the last 40 years. What is our innovation policy? How do we link, you know, how do we create the right architecture for universities and industry to collaborate? Um, how do we create the right system so that when universities, as uh, uh, Bournemouth is doing, are collaborating with external organizations, and there is some great intellectual property that comes, that universities can spin them out and actually create uh, some wealth out of it. All of those things fall uh, within my remit as a university's minister. And as I said right at the start, I can sit in Whitehall um, behind a desk and getting submissions, as we call them, from my civil servants and just making comments on those. But I think that it's important to go out there and actually hear what people have got to say. So as university's minister, I also think that being the minister out there talking to students is particularly important. I hope that's helpful to you. Not So it's nice to hear from your own voice, you
8: know, what is it you actually get involved in?
4: Sorry, I think she was, oh, very, very generous of you. Okay,
6: uh, I was wondering what you're doing to resolve the current UCU pension strikes. Uh, It seems to me there needs to be a proper inquiry into the ways in which university is being governed. I just wondered if you had any comments on that.
4: (coughs) Well, um, I mean, first, first I think it's very helpful being clear on kind of the situation. So you've got a dispute between UUK which represents um, 61 of the pre-'92 universities, and uh, UCU, which is the lecturer's uh, union. The dispute is over the pension, a new pension scheme, moving from direct defined benefits to defined contribution, but also about the valuation that underpins the pension scheme. Now, this is just for context. This is one of the largest pension schemes in the country. It's got 400,000 members. It's got 61 billion in assets. It is a colossal pension scheme. So that's, that's what the dispute is about. It's about employers and employees. So it's not really for the government to resolve this. Um, there are three ways in which this can be resolved. Right. right. Um, oh, f- firstly, how does this come about? Every three years, you have to value the pension scheme. And that's according to the pensions regulator and this valuation has shown that there's a 6.1 billion deficit according to the pensions regulator. It's disputed, I know it's disputed, it, I know it's disputed, but that's, that's, that's the fact that the pensions regulator thinks that there is a deficit is not disputed. What's disputed is the size of that deficit. So there are three ways in which this could be resolved. One is that um, you move from defined benefit to defined contribution, which was the original offer. Two is that employers and employees contribute more and, uh, to the pension scheme if, um, if, if, that, if, if that is affordable. Three is that the, ch- the pension's regulator changes its position. That's what that dispute is about. It's a technical issue about pensions. What I've said is the best way, therefore, to resolve this is for both sides to actually sit down and talk about it. And I was very pleased that they got involved with ACAS talks a deal was put to the UCU members and they rejected it. But there is only one way out of this, which is that they both got to talk and work this out. And my concern is that the longer it takes, it's damaging students' education at a vital time on the academic year. You know, If you can't get your lectures as you prepare for your finals, you can't get to your labs because, uh, to do your experiments for part of your final exams. You've been at university for three years and this is it and you can't because there's a strike going on, every student and every parent will be totally justified, in fact right, and getting very annoyed with the system. And that is why they've got to resolve it as quickly as possible. I've been, I've been speaking to both parties on an ongoing basis uh, throughout this, and that's the message I've been giving them. All of you have got to sit down and work this out as quickly as possible in the interests of students. In other words, it's got nothing to do with marketization it is a pensions issue that needs to be resolved.
0: I'd like to ask a question if I can around, um, you um, recently announced a pilot um, rating uh, system for degree courses, um, and that's following on from the TEF rating for universities. How does that work hand in hand? So what does it mean for a student um, who's on a bronze course at a gold institution? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll see, we'll see. And
4: um, uh, people choose courses for a whole number of reasons and, and universities for a whole number of reasons. And the subject rating is not meant to be the defining reason why you choose a university. You might choose a university because of the broad experience. You might choose a university because it's a gold university and you don't want that name on your CV. There are many other reasons. But the flip side and the reason why I think the subject level rating is correct, right and why I want it is, I want universities to raise their game in terms of teaching quality. And I also want there to, be, there to be transparency for students. I want to know if I'm choosing a course that the teaching quality is there. There, there are students who have said to me, I didn't even know what the different universities were when I was choosing a university. I just chose the one down the road from me. Um, you want to be a lawyer, but you don't really know that this law course is more likely to actually get you into bar school than another law course. It kind of helps for you to know that. Um, you're doing business studies, and in some cases, you have graduate outcomes and business studies of £17,000 after three years of graduating, in some cases, £50,000. I kind of think whatever your motivations are, it's helpful to know that. I think, but what I want to stress here is it's not just about graduate earnings at the end of it. That's just one component. It's so that people have the transparency when they're choosing courses into what they're choosing. I think that is important. And I said to a couple of students I met uh, who are some journalist students here uh, earlier on, wealthy MBA students have a lot of transparency and information. Surely, if you're an 18-year-old where every pound counts, it makes sense to give you as much information as possible to make what will be probably the defining decision in your life about which university and which course to take. Now, it might, might need tweaking. Over time, but I think the principles behind it are definitely sound.
0: Thank you. Um, I'd just like to invite Connor Burns, uh, MP for Bournemouth West, up to say a few words now.
4: There were a couple of other questions you might take in there, yep. and then uh, just uh, someone just groaned there. <laughs> <laughs> just okay, you, your one, and then a couple of the back, and then I'll wrap up. Thank you.
5: Um, so my question was more about, so like vice chancellor pay. In your opinion, as university's minister, do you think that should be reduced?
4: Well, um, the, 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 shh. I don't want to lose friends before I've left, so I'm just going to face you and <laughs> i answer that question. Look, uh, the, 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 the way I look at it is, um, you know, as university's minister, I don't object to the fact that I think almost every vice chancellor in the country earns three four times what I earn. I don't object to that. Um, I don't object. What I object to is high pay for mediocre performance. Right? That, I think, is unacceptable. So what, but how do you deal with it? I think the way you deal with it is to have a system in place where there is a robust and transparent system around pay and perks. So you do not want vice chancellors sitting, setting their own pay by sitting on the remuneration committee and setting their own pay, that's unacceptable. But you also want, and this is something that a new regulator is going to be doing on behalf of students, is going to be looking at the ratio of vice chancellors pay to the median salary at the university and it's going to publish that so everyone can see. The third thing it's going to do is that it, it, it's going to be looking at is uh, the whole issue of everyone's salary in the university of £150,000 will be published with a justification for that salary so everyone can see why it is deemed that someone has to be paid that amount of money and then it can be challenged. I think that is right. But what, I think we, what I'm not going to do is get into... This, position of saying we're gonna ban people from earning more than X amount of money. I think we want to make sure that where people are earning the money, they are delivering the value for it. And If you go to an institution and you get the right course, you get an amazing experience and it works for your life, probably wouldn't look back. And if you go to an institution, I think a lady who said she was at a university and had a really bad experience, and that happens, you kind of think, why is that person getting paid that amount of money when I've had this bad experience? What are they doing for it? So I think we need the transparency around it. Final two, so gentlemen right at the back in the striped jumper and then the one in front of him over there.
2: Uh, Thank you very much. I am an international student so um, I would like to ask uh, is it the vision of the government uh, post-Brexit to have or still attract the best international students? Because um, I took the clue from your last statement on that, That the best are still knocking on the door to come in. Is it really true or is a kind of delusion? Because um, Canada, USA, they are doing the best to attract, I mean they are giving opportunities for people to come like into their country uh, to study. When you look at the newspaper or read the newspaper, um, let's say, for instance, uh, Bonn are to have um, a student accommodation. The comments you read them. Oh, students! Oh, students! Also, for international students, we are still included in the number of um, the number for uh, the immigration uh, target.
4: Migration, yeah, net migration. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, is it fair to use us as? Um, I don't know whether it's the right um, idiom to use as pounds or something because to achieve uh, um, the, uh, the government's uh, immigration targets. Is it fair? Is this still, it, it still backed by some good evidence? Because what I've read um, is otherwise. Thank you. Okay,
4: good. Um, the lonely does Britain still want to attract international students? The answer in one word is yes, right? Our higher education system is world class, second only to the United States. We are four of the top 10 in the world, 16 of the top 100 in the world. And the United States has five times our population. But that success is predicated on HE being a global industry. And I would say that after financial services, probably our university sector is right up there in terms of this um, contribution to our economy. So the answer is yes, and if we want it to continue to be global, it means that we've got to have international students, the brightest and the best, coming to study here. And you're right, it's more, the environment is more competitive now, right? Um, Australia, Canada, um, the US, lots of other countries want to get in on this game, so we've got to do that. Net migration target, there is an international definition for uh, migration. It includes our students. The key thing for me is that no university should have to turn away an international student based on our migration policy. And at the moment, that's not the case. And in terms of evidence, which you asked for, there is a, there's the Independent Migration Advisory Committee that is looking at the contribution of international students to our university system in the UK economy. It's independent, it will report in the autumn, and that is what is going to influence po- government policy on international students rather than uh, being done on a whim. So it's absolutely vital. And we do want people to come and study here, but also collaboration between academics is the way in which we have great breakthroughs. So we can't succeed if we don't have collaboration and we are under no illusion that we need to do everything to attract people. I don't think Brexit is going to stop that. Final question, gentleman over there. It was actually the guy behind you, but carry on.
2: <laughs> Do
4: you want to use the mic, please? Yeah. Why UK provides so little in terms of studentships, ships, both for local. What? St- studentships. Okay, okay. Yeah, in terms for for local students and for international. For for instance, USA uh, provides a lot of them. So if you are winner of of international uh, competition for physics, you can go there for free, but not to UK, why? Why not to attract? You clearly choose to come to the UK, so it's, um, the opportunities are available. But we, we're very aware of this, but we've set up um, a fund recently, the Rutherford Fund, um, which is uh, dedicated to sort of PhD study in the UK. We're going to be doing a lot more around that. We do want to attract the brightest and the best. And um, yes, it means that funding has got to play a part, and we will make sure that where there is a need, that it is well-funded, and we, we become as attractive in competitive as we need to be. I just want to make sure that you get your question, and then now I'll wrap up.
5: Hello. I was just curious to know, do you believe the House of Lords should be reformed?
4: Wow. <laughs> uh, take it back. Don't go, take it back. Take it back. <laughs> no, I wish I had stopped uh, two questions ago. You know, and, um, do, do I believe the House of Lords should be reformed? Um, my belief Kind of when I first became an MP was if it ain't broke, don't fix it, and that there are some flaws you can identify uh, with the system, but we have you know we have a second chamber in the world that is comparatively cheaper than a lot of other second chambers, but also we have a second chamber that doesn't compete with the Commons, and so you don't kind of have the kind of you don't have deadlock between the commons and the lords, but also the world in which the lords will say, if you were to reform it, have a, an elected component. You then have, you know, the MP for Bournemouth and you have, like, the senator for Bournemouth, say. And I just sort of thought that's... I didn't see how that enhances democracy rather than actually confuse democracy even more because the lords performs a very different function to the commons, which is to scrutinize, review legislation, primarily. So I kind of still mainly hold the view that I started with. There have been some reforms like retirement, getting people to retire (laughs) at a certain point. I think that's quite a good thing. Um, But I, I, I recognize that as a political issue, it is one that is going to be a big issue over time not least because of com- the current size of the Lords at the moment. It's got roughly 850 members versus the Commons 650. So I can see it becoming a political issue. But when it comes to constitutional issues, I maybe part of the reason why I'm a Conservative, although I don't know what Connor's uh, view on this is, is that evolution is better than revolution. And our um, uh, democracy is what it is, and it's been honed over... Uh, Hundreds of years because we've taken the approach to evolve things and I'm sure the laws will look quite different in 20 thirty years time but that's what I prefer well thank you very much for having me um, I've enjoyed it a lot to take back um, I've got uh, my colleague Andy here and what he try what he likes to do at the end of these things is uh, produce a short like one one minute uh, video clip of what happened so we can share with the outside world and um, so if you're willing to share your thoughts on the big political issues, um, what you do, um, if you're me, but also whether you thought this event was ha- worth having anyway. Um, if you could go to um, Andy and have a chat with him, it's a short video, but I think it's great to let people know that yes, you know, we had a good. I think we had a good discussion. I hope you think so as well. And thank you very much for having me.
0: It's my task. Of... Pleasant one it is.